right, so we can open our Bibles to John chapter 7 this morning as we look at the ending of John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. You know, this is the same day, same, possibly even the same hour as the rivers of living water expression he made that we looked at last week. So while it's been seven days for us, it's been just a few minutes in real life there in the temple. So let's start with reading chapter 7, verse 40 through 52. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village? where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law and is accursed? And Nicodemus, who had gone to him, Jesus, before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Lord, thank you. Thank you for... Even this kind of uncomfortable moment in the Gospel of John and this time when we look into your word and seek to understand the fullness of the rivers of living water that flow from you and well up within us to flow out into others around us. And Lord, we ask that you would just open our eyes and open our ears, and most importantly, open our hearts so that we would see and understand, so that we would hear and know, and we would believe in our hearts and live. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So Jesus has been in the temple, right? And like we looked at last week, he's just made this loud exclamation that he's the river of living water that they're all seeking in the end of the feast, in this great day of the feast where they're observing the water ceremony and that all who will come to him, that out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. Of course, as John explains to us, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit coming to live and flow from within the heart, mind, and soul of an individual that trusts and believes in Jesus. And now we have all the crowd's response, right? These different responses. This is the dividing again that we see as we saw before, starting in John chapter 3, where the crowds are divided about who is this Jesus. And the question just comes up again. He said these words in the middle of the feast, the middle of the temple during the middle of the ceremonies and feasting of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're like, well, who is this guy? And when they, you know, and some people think this really is the prophet. So is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? Or is he none of the above? Which is he? 
That's the unspoken question that John is posing here that the crowd, the Pharisees, and even the temple guards are having to answer. And he's posing it unspoken by the way they respond. And he is also pushing to this realization that people have to make a choice. They have to start making a choice about who is Jesus. You just can't make a pass on, well, I'm not sure. You got to make a choice. And this idea of the prophet, that some say he's the prophet and others say he's the Christ, is kind of confusing. One part to understand is that in Jesus' day, the idea of the prophet here is this is the, that that the prophet and the Christ were two separate people. In their mindset, they just had no comprehension that you would have one person fulfilling both of those roles as a single individual. That there was always going to be the prophet and then the Christ, and they weren't the same person. And so when some say he's the prophet, they're referring to the promised prophet that Moses gave at the end of Deuteronomy, where he promised that another prophet like him would arise and God would send this prophet. And it taken on as much the way the Samaritans viewed the prophet, that this was someone from Deuteronomy who was the great law fulfiller. They wouldn't necessarily come and give a new law, but they would show how to live it most perfectly. And then the Christ is the idea of this office of the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Son of David that all of us recognize and understand. And so they're thinking these are two separate people. And so they're trying to decide, well, is he the prophet or is he the Christ? Or is he not either one, but something else? One of these false teachers that leads the people astray. That's what the Pharisees keep saying. And then part of their struggle, as you see in this response, is, well, wait a minute, he's from Galilee. And we know that he can't be the Christ if he comes from Galilee. And so here, John's actually using this question they raise of well look he's from Galilee so obviously he can't be the Christ he's using that ignorance of where Jesus was from right they think he's what's his name to everyone in this in the temple right there that day we know him as Jesus Christ but nobody in that day knew him as Jesus Christ they knew him as Jesus of Nazareth well Nazareth in Galilee so if he's from Galilee he can't be the Christ Right, And so that lack of understanding, that ignorance of where he was truly from, because we know that he was born in the city of David, in the village of Bethlehem, as promised that the Messiah would come from, but they only knew him as Jesus from Nazareth. And John's illustrating that their ignorance here of his birthplace, causing them to be confused about who he is, thinking he can't possibly be the Christ because he's from Nazareth, not understanding that he was originally and really from Bethlehem, it has a double meaning. Their ignorance about where he was truly from wasn't just about the physical place of his birth, but it was also the ignorance of where he was truly from and his origins from heaven. Not understanding that this man is both the prophet and the Christ, he's also from heaven but they can't see that. They can't understand it. Now, some understand something because they respond in the positive way. This is the Christ, right? If you notice in your Bibles, there's not a question mark there. They aren't asking, 
Well, is this the Christ? They are saying they now believe he is the Christ or that he is the prophet. So some are believing. But once again, as we've seen so often since the beginning of John chapter 3, the people are divided over who Jesus is. Some believe one thing and some believe another. So some rejected him and they wanted him to be arrested like the Pharisees do, right? Those who completely reject Jesus as neither the priest nor the prophet recognize that if he's not the priest or the prophet, he's a bad man and we need to have him arrested and the authorities need to take... The, people, the government needs to do something about that man. They aren't ready to do anything about it themselves. They still want the authorities to do it. But oh, by the time we get done with all this, they're going to be ready to do something for the, by themselves. They're not going to wait on the government or the authorities. And so they want him arrested. But here again, we see this amazing response. But no one laid hands on him. As has stated earlier in John chapter 7, as well as in other places in the gospel of John, this idea that it was not his time and therefore, even though they wanted to have him arrested and there was probably some of this crowd worked up into a frenzy, you know, they were probably worked up in a frenzy and yet even still, they couldn't put their hands on him and arrest him. Like you hold him while I go get the temple. Look, there are the temple guards. You hold him. I'll go grab one. No, they can't even do that because this is not his time and it will not occur until the moment of his choosing. But as fascinating as this first paragraph is of verses 40 through 44, the real stunning pieces of it are in the second paragraph, verses 45 through 52, where you have these arrogant elitists displaying their arrogance and their bias and their ridicule against everybody. And they stand also in stark contrast to Jesus' humility. John's subtly, subtly showing us this drastic contrast between these elitists with all their arrogance and the humility of Jesus. Something we have to learn to Mimic. No, we don't need to learn how to mimic the elitist biased attitudes. That's easy for us. It comes natural. The part we have to learn to mimic is the humility like Jesus did. The first thing that comes up here, the officers that were sent to arrest him. This was back from verse 32 in John chapter 7, where the Pharisees and the religious leaders sent the temple guard out into the temple area to go find Jesus and arrest him. You've got one job. Go find this guy that isn't hiding. In fact, he's standing up on a stone somewhere yelling out that he's rivers of living water. He's not hard to find. And all you've got is just, you just have one job. Get him. You don't even have to find him. He makes himself visible to you on purpose. And you can't do that. You can hear the, the ridicule in the voices of the Pharisees when the officers come back without Jesus. But the amazing thing is why they came back without Jesus. They were just mesmerized by his teaching. Standing there 
I'll use some sanctified imagination. Well, mostly sanctified imagination. Okay, maybe not any sanctification, but anyway, some imagination. Right? They're like, there he is, let's go. You know, and they got their spears and they got their shields and they, they got their body armor. They got the whole battle rattle going. And they're walking through the temple and everybody's getting out of the way and they're heading to Jesus. And Jesus starts talking. And all of a sudden they stop and they listen. What? Your job is to arrest him. Why are you listening to him? Nobody asked you to listen to him and pass judgment about whether or not he should or should not be arrested. You were told to go get him. But they're mesmerized by his teaching. And here's the thing. These aren't just your common Roman foot soldiers who are Gentile dogs that don't know nothing. These are temple guards. They're Levites. They're guys who, under a different set of circumstances, would be hauling wood to the altar, preparing sacrifices to go on the altar, dealing with the post-sacrifice ashes, fixing the temple. These were Levites who had been trained and taught the Torah. They knew the word. They knew everything. Well, I mean, they'd been taught everything. And they were well trained in the Torah and the Mosaic law. And so for them to be mesmerized by Jesus' teaching is just stunning. That would be like most of us having studied scriptures for multiple decades being just mesmerized at the teaching of someone. But that's what they were. And so they come back. See, this is what's like, I'm trying to figure this out. Okay, you have one job, go arrest Jesus. You know the Torah, you know the Mosaic law, you know the prophets, And you're sent to arrest Jesus and you're mesmerized by this guy so much that you make the judgment call to just walk away and leave him. Now, for us, that's just like, okay, they they were mesmerized, right? They, They recognized the truthfulness of his teaching. They recognized he was who he really says he is in some form or fashion. Some of these temple guards probably agreed with the crowd in that, well, I think he might be the prophet. And the other was like, maybe he's the Christ. And whatever decision they made, they passed judgment on Jesus and decided he was one or the other or something else, but he's not a deceiver who needs to be arrested and brought before the Pharisees. And we can all kind of comprehend that. But what we need to comprehend and understand is that they did all of that I just described understanding that they have a obligation a duty to obey the Pharisees and bring Jesus in not just as subordinates to those in authority over them but the entire idea of the temple guards was a non-questioning devotion to the high priest if the high priest said kill somebody, they killed them right there on the spot and didn't wait, didn't ask questions. If the high priest sent them out and said, 
clear the temple, get this crowd out of here. They went and cleared the temple. No questions asked. They were sent to arrest Jesus. No questions asked. We're taking him. We got full battle rattle. You want to mess with us? Come on, bring it. We'll take you down. You're going to lose this fight if you come against us. You're a regular Jewish person in the temple. You are completely incapable of opposing the temple guards. They've got the long spears. They've got the swords. They've got the shields. And they have the authority. You're just not, you know, you're not going to, you just, you might as well, it's like trying to take on a Navy SEAL team. You're going to lose. They have overwhelming firepower. And they were completely devoted to whatever they were instructed to do by the high priest. Except this time. I mean, in probability, somebody's head rolled. Somebody lost their position because of their disobedience in this time. But then the Pharisees' response to them. I mean, you would think, like these Pharisees, they know the Levites have been well taught and trained. And you would think they would have a little bit of consideration to their brothers in the temple service. But no, they do not. In fact, they have a most... intense response i mean they actually ridiculed them these guys who have been taught the law the same way they were taught it and under different circumstances the roles could have easily been reversed where they were a temple guard and this person was a pharisee they actually called them ignorant you are as ignorant as the crowds out there i don't know about you but i have found it not a wise thing to do with people heavily armed to call them ignorant. It just usually doesn't end well. It may not end in death, but it doesn't end well, right? And wow, wow, that's your response. You're ignorant. I got the same grade on the Mosaic Law Torah test as you did, so don't give me that crap. Well, you know, that would have been my response, but. Deceived out of ignorance was what they said. You're deceived like this crowd. And what we don't comprehend is that statement that they were deceived out of ignorance was a much bigger, fatter, thicker insult than we can imagine. Because, see, what we don't recognize is that in that day it was commonly believed by the educated and the elites, that ignorant people were easily deceived by the speech of a false teacher. This idea, this philosophy carried this belief that it was almost a magical element as if the false teacher could put the people under a spell. By the magical powers of my words, you are unable to resist me. I mean, it sounds silly, doesn't it? But that's what they believed. And of course, being the elitist, they had the antidote. The antidote to this magical element of the false teacher was simple. Be educated and enlightened like us. And so, obviously, you fools, doing my best Snape impression, obviously, you fools, were deceived by his magic. 
I mean, the arrogance here is just overwhelming once we start to understand all of these elements that are not obvious to us as Western readers, having not lived in their culture. And so the chief priest and the religious aristocrats, aristocrats, I think we should change the word from aristocrats to aristocrats, were displaying their bias and ridicule in their tirades. I mean, they literally came unglued and went off on the temple guards. I mean, I'm imagining something from like the cops TV show where the drunk person gets pulled over and just goes berserk on the cops when they get him out of the car, right? That kind of berserkness. And the elites in Jerusalem, they just look down on the pilgrims of the Feast of Tabernacles, ignorant, uneducated sinners. I mean, if you thought the arrogance they had dealing with the temple guards was bad, wait till you grasp this. See, they looked at all these pilgrims who came from all the different places as ignorant and uneducated sinners. See, they could not possibly have received a good education in the Torah, being from the rural areas, those hillbillies, or even worse, those who came from outside Judah, you know, the Hellenistic Jews, and the diaspora, those who lived out away from Judea. And of course, the Galileans are the worst of them all. The most repulsive of all are those Galileans. See, this lack of education in the Law and the Prophets had a natural consequence. There's just no way that they could have ever been trained and taught the law as good as we have been taught. And that has a natural consequence. You see, therefore, they were sinners. You can hear the very arrogant contempt Jesus confronting them in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, because these commoners hadn't been trained as well as us, they obviously weren't keeping the law that good. I mean, how can you keep a law that you don't know? How can you observe with the faithfulness of the rabbis if you've never been taught what the rabbi teaches you? Their superiority came from their better education. But, as is often the case with the arrogant who are pretending to be something they're not, 
They make a mistake that displays who they really are. They were already condemning Jesus. And Nicodemus confronts their own law-breaking. They're boasting and standing on this high horse of how well they keep the law because they know it better than everybody else. And Nicodemus confronts them, showing them they're actually breaking the law. See, verse 50 and 51, Nicodemus' words are this stinging reminder that they are breaking the very law they proclaim to be so good at keeping. They did not go into the temple and hear Jesus speak. They are too good for that. They might touch somebody who didn't wash their hands. Remember the silliness? Their fears of being made unclean by the most basic of human activities. So they're not going to go out in the temple and listen to what Jesus said. They're not going to listen to his own words. They hadn't heard him, yet they acted as judge, jury, and executioner without even a proper hearing of Jesus as the law commanded. The law said, if you want to bring someone up on charges, you've got to bring them in. You've got to listen to them and let their own words convict them that you hear with your own ears. No, no, we don't. This man is causing us trouble. Therefore, we're going to get rid of him. Judge, jury, and executioner without even proper hearing of the law. They were breaking the very law they proclaimed so vigorously to protect. And their arrogance gets even worse. They are so blinded by their rage, they not only ridicule the crowd, this ignorant crowd, this people who haven't been taught like we've been taught, but the guards. And then they ridicule Nicodemus for pointing out the very law they say they know so well. Of course, the irony of this whole paragraph is verse 52. And they replied, Are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Get out of my face. These elitists claim to know the law so well, yet they display their ignorance and bias by saying no prophet has ever come from Galilee. So you're not so hip on that Jonah Kai. Jonah character, huh? You're not so big on the Jonah and the whale story. Yeah, that Jonah, the one who's a real prophet, that Jonah, he's from Galilee. He was born in Gath-Hefer, which is just a small village slightly north of where Nazareth is. And there's Jonah, one of the prophets, one of the ones they proclaim to know so well, pretending like he's not from Galilee. And if that wasn't enough, there's some extra biblical evidence that raises the question about whether Elijah himself had come from Galilee. If the Tishbe listed in Second Kings as the Elijah from Tishbe, if that Tishbe was actually in Galilee, not in southern Judah. But they dismiss all that because it's inconvenient for them to accept the truth Anybody from Galilee is a piece of trash. Get rid of them. So what's also amazing here is that their ignorance, where the crowd displayed their ignorance about knowing where Jesus was truly from, and they display the same ignorance, except theirs is worse because of their arrogance is worse. 
thinking that there's no such thing as a prophet from Galilee. So this Galilean can't possibly have anything to say. He can't possibly be a person who speaks the truth of God. And so they cannot see Jesus for who he is, while at least some of the ignorant crowds could see who Jesus really was. Those who believed he was the Christ, they could actually see who he really was. Those ignorant, uneducated boonheads from the hills could see who Jesus was, but they could not with all their education. All of a sudden, their antidote for deception appears to have failed them. And they're the ones who've been deceived by the great deceiver. The irony is they were worried about a human deceiver deceiving the people while they were under the spell of the great deceiver. And of course, their ignorance is even further highlighted by believing that Jesus is from Galilee, not knowing that he was from Jerusalem as well. I mean, born in Bethlehem, as John assumed that all the readers would know. Okay, so what? This has been a fun adventure into seeing how arrogant the Pharisees were and having a little bit of time bashing them. But so what? Well, I feel like I say this every week. Jesus still divides. John's purpose here is to show the division among the crowd and the Pharisees and the temple guards in how some believed and some didn't. Some say today that, you know, Jesus is the Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, just as we do. Others say, well, no, he's just a good teacher. And then still others deny that he even existed, saying that Jesus was a mythical teacher made up by illiterate Jews desperate for a Messiah figure. Oh, Lord. Those are like the, they're the most frustrating. Because you've got to overcome the whole thing of denying exceptional historical evidence that Jesus is a literal figure who actually lived and existed. But that's, it's irrelevant. It doesn't fit my narrative. I've decided that he didn't really exist, and so I don't want to hear anything you've got to say otherwise. Jesus still divides today. Of course, the irony, well, to me it's an irony, is people are divided over who Jesus is, and when he comes back, Jesus is going to divide. He's definitely going to be, but he's the one doing the dividing. Remember the sheeps and the goats? He's going to separate the dividers. He's going to be the dividing line. This side goes to eternal glories and this side suffers the consequences for their rejection. And because Jesus still divides, we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Right? First Peter 3, 15 and 16. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We aren't given license. Peter doesn't give us license to follow the same insulting, degrading, dehumanizing characterization of our opponents that they participate in. Did you catch the sense of humiliation and shame and, and dehumanizing, demonizing 
the crowds, anybody who disagreed with them, with the Pharisees in this passage. And then lastly, I would just say that the, maybe this is the most important one of all. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. I mean, it's easy to fall into an elitist attitude as Christians, right? Those unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit like us. They just can't understand. They are blind by their spiritual ignorance. That is a factually true statement. The unbelievers are blinded by their spiritual ignorance and they can't understand it because they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely 100% true. But the truth isn't the problem. It's not the truth of the statement that makes us a Pharisee or a disciple of Jesus. It's the attitude of the heart. And the attitude of the heart is betrayed by the way it is said. We can say that truthful statement about the unbelievers in a pharisaical way when it's said from an attitude of superiority and disdain for them. Or it can be said with the same attitude that Jesus had that day, longing for them to receive it and know the joy of the Holy Spirit so that living waters would flow from within their hearts. I can say that statement, those unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit like us. They just can't understand. They are blinded by their spiritual ignorance. And the attitude of a Christ follower will be, O Lord, send the Spirit, so they will have him. And that's, maybe that's the hardest part of all, especially when there's been multiple conversations with that unbeliever. Some of them maybe even heated and a little unpleasant. And they get a little edgy and a little testy in their rebuttal of why they won't believe in Jesus. And it's easy for us to get sucked into that during the time of trying to reach them with the hope of Jesus that you're going to be edgy, I'm going to be edgy. I'm going to match your level of intensity with whatever it is. But instead, Jesus just continuously calls us to be the humble life givers, not the spirit crushers. They don't need their spirit crushed They need the gift of the Holy Spirit, the life-giving gift of the Holy Spirit. And while the giving of the Spirit is not dependent upon us, we don't help encourage its arrival by being snarky and edgy back at them. So my encouragement, brothers and sisters, is when those biased, arrogant persons ridicule us, is ignorant for believing in a mythology. Don't fall into their same trap, but instead speak the words of life and pray for the Spirit's coming. Let's pray. O Lord,
we ask that you would bless us with your presence. Not just now in this hour that we've been here together worshiping you in church, but we ask, Lord, that you would bless us with your presence when we walk out of here every day, our coming outs and our goings ins. That from this time forth and forevermore, we would be life givers, giving the healing waters of your word and your truth through the Holy Spirit flowing out of us. And that by your mercies, the Holy Spirit and healing waters would flow into the hearts, the minds, and the soul of those who still don't know you. We ask it in the only name we can ask for something like this. In the name of Jesus. Amen.